You're listening to The Advocast, presented and produced by the Advocates for Human Rights. In March 2018, the Mississippi legislature passed HB 1510, the Gestational Age Act, which banned abortion after the first 15 weeks. There were limited exceptions for medical emergencies or severe fetal abnormality, but not for cases of rape or incest. Republican Governor Phil Bryant signed the bill on March 19, 2018. Jackson Women's Health Organization quickly challenged the law, and in November 2018, the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi ruled in the clinic's favor. In December 2019, the Fifth Circuit unanimously upheld the lower court's decision. Mississippi appealed the ruling to the Supreme Court in October 2021, and justices heard oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization in December. On Friday, June 24th, the Supreme Court ruled on the case, overturning Roe v. Wade, which protected women's access to abortion within the first 24 weeks. This new ruling returns regulation to the states, 26 of which already have statutes banning or severely restricting abortion. The criminalization of abortion and the universal prohibition of safe abortion services are violations of international human rights law. Authoritative treaty interpretations indicate The right to health, including sexual and reproductive health, is a fundamental human right. Interference with safe access to abortion services endangers women and potentially violates their rights to life and security of their own bodies. Prohibitions on safe abortion services have a disparate impact on poor, minority, and marginalized communities and constitute discrimination. Prohibitions on access to safe abortion services may violate the right to privacy when the state prohibits a woman from making an autonomous decision about her own reproductive health. And prohibitions on access to safe abortion services that force women to travel to obtain these services may be a form of cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment. We call on elected officials at all levels of government to ensure that U.S. abortion laws conform to international human rights law. On June 22nd, Just two days before the Dobbs decision, Neil Datta spoke at our 2022 Human Rights Awards Dinner. Neil Datta is a founder of the European Parliamentary Forum for Sexual and Reproductive Rights. Neil received our 2022 Don and Arvon Fraser Human Rights Award because of his fearless commitment to investigating and exposing the far-right movement to roll back advancements in human rights. In the face of lawsuits and personal threats, Neil has persevered in his efforts to protect fundamental rights. His work aligns with the advocates' efforts to investigate the far-right strategies and support our NGO partners in countries around the world as they counter the backlash to human rights. The following is a recording of the event and features Rosalind Park, director of the Women's Human Rights Program here at The Advocates, and Neil Datta himself speaking about the importance of this work. Good evening. My name is Rosalind Park, and I direct the Women's Human Rights Program. It is an honor to present Neil Datta with our 2022 Don and Arvon Fraser Human Rights Award. Neil is the founder and director of the European Parliamentary Forum for Sexual and Reproductive Rights. He has worked tirelessly and courageously to investigate and expose the far right amidst tremendous risk to himself and his organization. Neil is a personal hero to me, as well as numerous human rights defenders around the world. And today, 
our human rights are under serious attack. We have heard from our NGO partners about the perils they face, threats of death, rape, and frivolous lawsuits, as well as the increasingly difficult conditions they work under when governments restrict their activities. Yet, in the face of such danger, Neil has persevered with bravery and tenacity to unmask the far right. Until a few years ago, there was very little known about how the far right movement works or how it's connected. And that's because the movement thrives in secrecy. And as a result, it has been able to operate with very little scrutiny or pushback for years, gaining inroads in crushing the very human rights we have long fought for and secured. When the advocates first began our work to investigate the far right, we turned to Neil's research to understand this movement and its tactics. His reports exposing the far right movement were both groundbreaking and fearless in peeling back the layers and exposing it for what it truly is. Hate groups designed to roll back the rights of women, LGBTI persons, immigrants, and children. We're also seeing these attacks play out right here in Minnesota. For those of you who read the recent Star Tribune op-ed attacking a trans woman's challenge to her placement in a men's prison, you know that this fight has come very close to home. But thanks to Neil Datta, the human rights movement is better equipped to recognize these groups, counter their tactics, and reclaim our human rights. Your work and your courage, Neil, it lights a path forward for human rights defenders around the world. Thank you, Neil. It is an honor to present you with the Don and Arvon Fraser Human Rights Award. Well, thank you, Rose. Um, I think I have to start by saying how genuinely humbled I am by this award. Um, uh, I had it in my prepared speech, but uh, hearing this, uh, hearing Rose uh, explain it, really, um, I, I'm, I'm a bit, uh, I'm a bit speechless by hearing all of this. Um, I, I'm also extremely grateful for for this recognition, and um, and and I'm touched by how. Um, how useful it seems that these reports have been that I've written are for many people uh, advocating for human rights. When I started out writing these reports a couple of years ago, um, I thought, well, it's interesting to me. I think someone needs to hear about this and understand it, but I never imagined that it could be like this. Really, I never, never imagined this. Um, <laughs> Um, so, I, as with any award, I'd just like to first thank some people who helped me in this, in this journey. Um, uh, because, I mean, uh, uncovering the different anti-gender far-right actors 
uh, it's something that I've spent quite a bit of time, but also I did this in a community with many others, and we shared ideas, we exchanged information. Also, there's little bits of intelligence here and there that you know no one person can have, and, and so it's important to be part of a community that exchanges this, and I think it's important to, to recognize uh, the people who have helped in, the, in this path along the way. And, and these include uh, an academic in Brussels, David Paternot, my colleagues, uh, Rémi Bach and uh, Marina Davidashvili, the presidents of my organization, the European Parliamentary Forum, Ulrika Carlsen and Petra Bayer, these are both members of parliaments. It takes courage from a politician to really go against the far right and anti-gender and to put their names, the organization's name, behind these reports. And so really they deserve some thanks, as well as some other thought leaders, Sophie Innitfeld, um, he's a member of the European Parliament who's a tireless champion of all human rights, LGBT rights, women's rights, etc. And, uh, and also the journalists who have been very courageous in, in reporting on these issues from Open Democracy and uh, particularly uh, Claire Provost. Um, so as you know, I'm standing here before you because I've written by now three reports on, on the anti-gender movement, uh, um, far-right movement. Um, the first one was back in 2018, um, entitled Restoring the Natural Order. And, and it's in that report that basically we outline how what we had been observing in Europe uh, as disconnected things, so that there's an anti-abortion an anti initiative in Portugal, another one in Finland, there's an anti-LGBT initiative in Croatia, another one in uh, Romania. These were not all separate initiatives. These were all interconnected, and the connection was, as, as Rose mentioned, a, a secretive network that met behind closed doors, exchanged ideas, brainstormed, and then learned from each other, and then deployed these initiatives across different countries when the timing was right. And that's why we saw similar sets of initiatives appearing all over Eastern Europe. They had in common, they were all petitions, about traditional marriage, similar to your Defense of Marriage Acts uh, here in the US uh, from 15, 20 years ago. We had these appearing in, in Eastern Europe, petitions which then led to referenda, and then with the aim of changing uh, national constitutions. These were not organic developments that came from the ground below. These were strategically planted there by a certain set of individuals. And we know this by researching who is behind these petitions and referenda, and then realizing these people, these guys are meeting behind closed doors, and, um, and this is how they're doing this. And so when we had this realization, then all of a sudden, a lot of, a lot of other things made a, a lot of sense. Um, and I think it's important to realize this because this is not just happening in Europe, this is happening all over in many different parts of the world. We're here in the United States, uh, yeah, well, for me, it's a big deal to be in the U.S., not for you all. But, <laughs> but even in the United States, we're, we're at the cusp of one of the biggest decisions on women's rights that could happen in the next day, tomorrow, next weeks or so. And, and, and we all know it's not because American society is getting more conservative or so-called pro-life. It's because of a very calculated strategy by the Christian right and the far right to infiltrate the judiciary system plants judges in different places, and then now, after 30 years, this strategy is bearing, bearing results with the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. We have similar strategies 
in Europe taking place where the, the judiciary systems of certain countries are very much compromised. But I think it's important to realize that this is not just um, something of abstract law or policies or, or something like this. It really affects just ordinary people who want to live their own little lives. And I want to draw three examples here. Uh, the examples of Justina, Mirella, and David. Uh, Justina is a doula in Poland, okay? She also is a human rights activist. Like many women, uh, especially in the field of reproductive health, she has had to become a human rights activist since October 2020, when the Constitutional Tribunal, a very biased body, even more than your current Supreme Court with the three Trump appointees, even, even more biased than that, um, interpreted the, the country's constitution even more restrictively banning abortion for fetal anomaly. Okay? So it's, it, there's a virtual ban in the country. Justina was, con, uh, was confronted with a case where a woman came to her, a victim of domestic violence, but also pregnant and wanted to terminate the pregnancy. But she didn't have enough resources to travel to Germany or the Czech Republic or another country. And so Justina gave her abortion pills. Under the new legal framework in Poland, Justina's act is illegal. And she's now facing prosecution. Her trial will be only in July now. And if she's found guilty, and there's a good chance of, that, of this happening, she may face three years in prison. So I think that's one example of the type of, of cases that we're dealing with in, in, uh, in Europe now. And I fear what may happen in this country should the Supreme Court do uh, a, decide a certain thing in the coming weeks. Um, another case is that of Mirella. She's a woman from Croatia. Um, Croatia is a country where abortion is theoretically legal and should be accessible. Mirella was pregnant with a very much wanted pregnancy. But during a routine uh, uh, checkup with her gynecologist, she heard, she learned the devastating news that her fetus had a, had a very severe uh, anomaly and the doctor advised determination, not just because the pregnancy could not come to term, but for, for, uh, for Mirella's own health. Um, as she was dealing with this personal tragedy that uh, you know, the, her family plans were not going to come to realization, she was looking, she went to the public hospitals in the capital of uh, Zagreb, and she was told there that they could, they would, not that they could not, they would not perform determination because the, because the hospital as such invoked conscientious ob objection for the whole establishment. And she found this in several different places. So that as she's dealing with her own personal tra tragedy, um, she has to face her own concerns about her own health. She's faced, she has to confront the callousness of public health authorities who, who refuse to help her even though she's in legally entitled to this. In the end, she had to go to Slovenia, a neighboring country, to get the medical care she required. The third case I wanted to, to highlight of just normal people being impacted by the impact of these, uh, uh, of these far-right anti-gender initiatives is a young man that I met myself in, uh, in, in the town of Pulave, in, which is a small town about two hours outside of Warsaw in Poland. Um, Pulave adopted a thing, the town of Pulave, adopted a charter entitled Local Government Charter of the Rights of the Family. So this sounds very nice. 
But behind this local government charter hides a very restrictive definition for the family. Basically, a family is only a heterosexual patriarchal family. Not, no other type of family relationship is recognized. Now, what this does is that it created a perverse effect where it unleashed the darkest demons that exist in all societies in that it, it basically gave legitimacy, a state, state sanction to basically daily homophobia. So there's not, it's not so much violence that this allows, but it is, it legitimizes and sanctions individuals within these small towns to engage in acts of bullying, harassment, shoving, and you know, all of these things for sexual minorities. So David is, is a young gay man in his early 20s. He just wants to live his life. And he has, he explained that now in a town where there's almost zero crime, a little town in Poland, he has to go around carrying pepper spray in case the bullying ever gets out of hand. And now that's just this one example of David, but then when you think that um, these uh, local government charters for the rights of the family, they've been adopted by, at one point, one third of all the towns and municipalities of Poland, a big enough region that you can see on a map, okay? Probably the size of one of the medium-sized states in the United States. Um, it got so bad that the LGBT activists and even the European Union condemned these charters, labeling them as LGBT free zones. Okay, so imagine you're in a, in a part of, you're in a geographic area which is designated LGBT free. And, um, and so, this is, so this was a gross violation of human rights and it's only thanks to pressure from the LGBT community, other human rights groups, and also public authorities from the European Union, when they told Poland, we're going to cut off your public funding unless you start revoking these charters, that by now there's a good number of them that have started revoking these charters. But just to give an example of how these laws and policies then translate into daily violations of human rights. And now, maybe with all of this, I think it's important to remember that Justyna's case, the, the, the lady in Poland who's facing a trial, sadly, she's not alone in this situation. What we see now developing in, in Europe, I don't know what it's like here in the United States, but we see this definitely in Poland and in some other countries, is that when one stands up for human rights, then the human rights defenders are increasingly faced with lawsuits, these so-called um, strategic lawsuits against public participation, slap suits. Okay? And, um, and we see that, in fact, this has developed into a whole industry where the anti-human rights, the anti-gender organizations use this, on the one hand, to silence their opponents, and equally, very cynically, to, resort, to mobilize resources in the way that has just been done here. And the process is as follows, and this is what happened with me. Um, uh, first, they find a human rights defender, they say something that, that they don't like, they, announce, they then announce on Twitter that they will sue them. Okay, so that's how you find out. And then the following week, then, uh, what happens is that you see that there's an email blast and a Twitter campaign fundraising to sue Neil Data or sue someone else for this or that. And so like this, they fundraise off of the lawsuit against you. And then even if you, 
intellectually you know this is an, an intimidation tactic it's a very effective one and so you see that not only are they trying to silence you but they're fundraising off of you at the same time and these are not just isolated cases um, uh, I mean myself I, ha I went to Poland last year in October and we had uh, our own political event there uh, to to really mark the one year of the restricted abortion policies in Poland. And so we had a, an informal dinner between ourselves from outside Poland and the Polish organizers. About 30 of us at the dinner, we realized that there were at least five of us that were all being sued at the same time by the same organization. And just this past weekend, I was in Copenhagen with uh, uh, speaking at a panel with Marta Lempart. Marta Lempart is the leader of the Polish women's strike. So if any of you have seen images on CNN or, or I guess not on Fox News, but CNN um, <laughs> about the demonstrations of women activists in Poland and now activists for human rights. If any of you have seen those images of Warsaw, etc., Marta is a lady who organized those demonstrations. Uh, she's able to bring together hundreds of thousands of people to, to mobilize for human rights in Poland. Marta was telling me that this, just this past weekend, she now reached her 101st lawsuit against her uh, by different authorities, by, by you know, uh, private ultra-conservative NGOs even, and the government and different actors. And as I said, myself, I'm facing a lawsuit for this. Um, because of what I said in a hearing in front of the European Parliament about the situation in Poland. And so my, my court date is um, uh, 16 February 2023. So I have that to look forward immediately after Valentine's Day. So <laughs> um, I think maybe one thing that these lawsuits um, illustrate is that I would suggest we're going beyond simply the culture wars around bodily autonomy. So we're, we're familiar with those, you know, especially here in the United States, you, you know what those are about. But I think here now we're seeing what's, what, that these culture wars are slipping into a process of, of eroding democracy itself. And that we see that the groups um, behind a number of these, um, these anti-gender far-right initiatives are also unstitching the foundations that we thought were sacrosanct for a functioning liberal democracy. And we see this here in the United States. I don't need to mention another thing that's happening um, uh, currently right now, aside from the Supreme Court, there's the, the January 6th hearings uh, taking place in Washington. But we see a similar phenomenon, although adapted to different local realities in many, many different countries around, around Europe and, and indeed the world. And, and when we take a look at this, and it, this is part of the work that I've been doing in my, with my reports, I've come to the realization that for some of these human, anti-human rights, these uh, far-right anti-gender actors, for some of them, um, really the main objective is to change laws and policies so that they reflect their own personal interpretation of certain religious texts. Okay? We know the, the religious background behind opposition to some women's rights or LGBT rights. But increasingly, we find that now the, the people taking up these issues is wider. And it looks like there's a certain number of actors who are really much more far-right oriented, who have seized upon these same issues, abortion, women's rights, LGBT rights, gender issues, mainly in a utilitarian way in order to access power. 
and by accessing power, then they can unstitch certain fundamental democratic principles to stay in power. And so we can see that maybe in, in certain cases, our human rights, there's simply an accident along the way for certain forces in society to access power. Now, an important thing to, to keep in mind is that these forces, as, as Rose mentioned, as, as, as I've uh, highlighted in my, in my reports, these are not random, they're not organic that come up from the ground up. These are transnationally connected and very strategic. Um, we know that they've met in different places. One of them is the World Congress of Families. Another setting is a, a, a network called Agenda Europe. And what we see is a certain common pattern. The types of people that are there have the US Christian right. No big surprise there, I, I think including in this room. Another set of actors are Russian actors, specifically oligarchs close to the Kremlin. And then another set of actors are European far-right actors. And European far-right actors, just remember what all of you learned in your history classes many years ago, European far-right is the European far-right of the 1930s and 40s, okay? These are fascist, post-fascist elements. These are now all coming together and having a common agenda around certain issues related to what they call life, family, and freedom. And we know that they meet, the next meeting will be uh, in Mexico City in October, and it's in these meetings that they produce bad, horrible ideas which are then implemented nationally. Just one most recent example is an anti-gay bill in the parliament of Ghana, just in, uh, in the autumn of last year. And, um, and, and we see that now an, emer um, that now an emerging champion be among these, um, these far-right actors has been the Russian Federation. And so uh, going from normative objectives and policy objectives, we see that now anti-gender far-right initiatives have reached almost a diplomatic level where the need to protect the Donbass region from the possibility of having to organize what they call gay pride parades by joining the West was used as justification for the Russian aggression against Ukraine. So we see how far, um, how far up it has gone in some countries, this idea that, um, uh, that uh, human rights for certain categories of people can pose an, an, an existential threat. And when we step further back from this example, we can see that in fact, Across the world, it's the same groups that are organizing far-right marches in downtown Warsaw that are carrying tiki torches in Charlotte that were there storming the, the Capitol building on the, on the 6th of January. There's a continuum between all of these groups. Um, one good thing, though, is that um, in a number of East European countries, the Russian connections that we have been able to establish through tracking their funding has become increasingly costly for the legitimacy of these groups. Um, when we study these groups, as we did with the, uh, with the reports that we did, what we, what we were able to do is identify how they're networked, their funding sources, and their main strategies. Once we know this, we're able to neutralize a lot of their impact. When we know their funding bases, then we can, we can try to stop their funding. When we know their strategies, it's a bit like with a magician. We can explain to their intended audience how the strategy will be developed, just like if you explain how a, a magician does his trick, when the magician does the trick, it's not as magical anymore. So when the strategy is deployed, it lands, on a, it, it lands very flatly. 
So we've been able to do this uh, thanks to these reports, and that has proven to be rather successful. Um, but also, in, in discussing over the past few days, I realized when people were asking me, well, what has been the result of these things? And one, one thing I realized is that, in fact, a number of the results happened without any big bang. Uh, some of the results that we've been able to register is that we've simply stopped horrible initiatives from going any further. So at least one good thing, I mean, for example, some of these initiatives were in Poland to equate comprehensive sexuality education with pedophilia because apparently it was sexualized children. There was an initiative in Parliament to do this or to ban abortion or to withdraw from the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women. A number of these measures are dead in their tracks now. So thanks to our work, the work of your partners, of many, many activists, including Marta Lempart, I mentioned in Poland, these initiatives are now dead. So I think that's one victory that we can, uh, or they're not, maybe not dead, but they're at least frozen. So that's one small victory that we can claim. Um, also, let's see, I'm nearing the end, okay. <laughs> so, um, so I think that's one good thing that we can, that we can think of. And um, maybe um, I just want to end with this here. When uh, my, my table mate, Sarah, was asking me, um, what gives you hope in, um, uh, you know, in, in doing all of this work? Because I, I mean, I've just explained, I've just talked about some very bleak things, to be honest, and I, I'm not too sure it will go over that well on a festive dinner like this late in the evening, but, uh, <laughs> but, and, you know, but what gives me hope? One is that I think by increasing the understanding of how our op opponents are organized and network, it makes them much more real and, and manageable. Now we have an, identifi an identifiable adversary, and we can, we, can, we, can, we can come up with more clever strategies to counter that. And, and it has been effective, as I've mentioned. But another thing that really gives me hope, and I was just realizing as I spent a lovely three days here in Minneapolis, is a gathering like this, where um, there's so much positive energy, so much talent, the unique way that the advocates is able to really bring in so many volunteers and, um, and very talented volunteers to channel their goodwill towards uh, helping out with this situation is really very, is really very hopeful. And I think it's, a, it's an, an amazing model that you have here. And I think that provides me and I hope all of you with hope when we're confronted with these seemingly impossible challenges to be able to find each other, to have a sense of community, to know that we're all trying to pitch in our own little bit to, um, uh, to make a difference, I think that is very hopeful. And I think that's something that we have that, uh, that we can build on. So I think maybe just to end here, I think we have a lot of work ahead of us. I think you in the US have a lot of work. We have also a lot of work in, in Europe and in other parts of the world. And maybe given the, the current climate um, uh, that we're facing now, it would be appropriate for a small uh, quotation from uh, Margaret Atwood, and, uh, and I'll end here, which is, I won't say it in, in the original Latin, but it is, um, it's a famous quote from her, from her book, don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank you.
of the Advocates for Human Rights are inspired by Neil's research and advocacy for human rights. By revealing and explaining the strategies of the ultra-conservative anti-gender movement, Neil provides hope to women, LGBTIQ people, and human rights defenders worldwide. We are honored to present Neil with the 2022 Donna Fraser Human Rights Award. And here at The Advocates, we are committed to continuing the fight for human rights for everyone, both in our home community and around the world. If you're interested in learning more about The Advocates and what we do, visit us at theadvocatesforhumanrights.org. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing the episode with your friends. It really helps us out. Once again, thanks for listening.